This is the SFF Audio Podcast. I'm Scott. I'm Luke. And I'm Jenny. Hello, and welcome to the SFF Audio Podcast. Hello. <laughs> where's Jesse? Yeah, where's Jesse? I don't know. Where is that Jesse? <laughs> we're going to talk well, we about... I guess we'll have to do this podcast soon. Yeah. We'll do this without him. This is because we're doing a book, which he's like, I refuse to read a book by this author. And we're like, wow, you're taking that a bit strong, but <laughs> we'll respect his opinion in this. That's right. In this, uh, in this regard. You bet. Yes, Oryx and, and Crick hap- by Margaret Atwood is what we're going to talk about. And it happens to be one of my favorite books. So I've been trying to get us to talk about it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was you and I think Eric as well was saying, hey, let's give it. Was it Eric? I can't remember. I, yeah, I, I, I just remember Eric looking at the list of possible episodes. Yeah. So go on. I think if this is one of your favorite books ever, right off the bat, before we get into any deep discussion of it or any massive spoiler territory, um, I know Jesse doesn't like that word, but he's not here, so uh, <laughs> he can. Um, he can, well, he's not here. So yes. go on. Tell us, tell us why we should be reading this book and why it's your favorite book. One of your favorite books. Well, for the on the on the one hand, I just love post-apocalyptic and dystopian novels. That's my favorite thing. Yep. Um, but I think what I like the most about this book, and the reason that I quit book club over it and I keep reading it, is that it ends with more questions than answers for me. And so it's really compelling to think about. Um, I don't understand why some of the people did what they did, and I don't understand what motivated them, and it bothers me. So then I keep going back to try to figure it out. Um, and I love books like that. I like to have to think about them afterward. And that's no spoilers at all. <laughs> no, you didn't even didn't even talk about it. Yeah, uh, the book itself. No. So, uh, should we do a quick overview of what the book's about? I mean, I'm I'm never quite sure because normally Jesse takes the lead here. Yeah, yeah. Scott, <laughs> you you do most. You do you say something. <laughs> this is your show as well. Oh shoot! Yeah. So yeah, we ought to just uh, quickly summarize it. Um, Jenny, you want to do that as well? Okay. Since I can you're try. so familiar with it, yeah. So the novel starts with a man wandering on the shore, basically, and he thinks he's the only human left. And you slowly get to know these people known as the people of Crake or sometimes the Crakers that aren't quite human. They have different types of body parts. They smell like oranges, which keeps bugs away. And you slowly get to know the story of what happened before that. And you find out that most of the people on Earth have died. Um, It's called the waterless flood by some people. And it was mostly a virus that killed everyone. So there's kind of a restart. And Jimmy's trying to live and help, I guess, protect the Krakers. Did I miss anything? (laughs) (laughs) No, that's pretty much it. I I really admired how this book was put together. Um, yeah, you know the the whole way that they uh, intertwine the past. I mean, there's like a distant past, there's a not so distant past, and there's a present. And um, you know, it takes you just a, not very long to figure out. You know, Snowman is Jimmy, and you know they're the same person. I think it actually mm-hmm. says, you know, Jimmy is Snowman. It, yeah. It's not like a secret or anything, but I didn't have any problem following it at all, and and I really enjoyed it. And um, I listened yeah. to about half of it and read half of it. Go ahead. 
Uh, I listened to the audiobook of it, and th- what I really loved about this, oh, what, one thing that I enjoyed about, like I say, is the structure of it. This kind of back and forth structure, and like, and also like Jenny, you said that they, it, they, you kind of go into it, and you think some questions are going to be answered. Like you think, ah, well, this is something that's going to be important. This is going to be answered, but it isn't. And then other things hmm. are answered. You know, other things which you didn't realize were questions, and then and other things are kind of pre-answered as well. Yeah. But it reminds me, um, w- did you guys read um, Earth Abides? Um, yes, I've read part of it. I, I, have not, uh, I have never did finish it, but I wasn't on that podcast. Let me just. Mm-hmm. Oh, you weren't on the podcast. Okay, right. Earth abides by um, is it George, George Stewart? Uh, yeah, George Stewart. Mm-hmm. George R. Stewart. Mm-hmm. Um, and that starts off with an old guy, like with a with a with a group of. Um, with a group of young people who have kind of lived like that's again that's a similar kind of big disease comes through and kills everybody off kind of thing that goes on there and um and it, and it's and, and the book ends with him kind of trying to explain things and people looking at him and going oh you're weird you're old and crinkly and he's like yes but i'm your elder and this is what you need to know um and that's the way that kind of book ends with this weird kind of oh what's going to happen in the future and this book starts there so I thought, hmm. oh, this is going to be great. You know, we're going to have like what Earth Abides did, um, but but it, it isn't that at all. Actually, it actually kind of ends there at the same place that Earth Abides does, with like an old guy um, trying to continue civilization or trying to give the next generations the information or myths or whatever they need um, to. To, to use to get through that of course in earth abides those kind of myths come up accidentally and he's like no 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 don't believe them whereas in this book it's the other way around he could tell them the truth but instead of that he tells them myths so it's like a, a nice companion to earth abides i think mm-hmm. that right that's interesting yeah and i yeah. think in the timeline of the book i think we really only move forward what a week a month yeah, uh, I couldn't quite. What like that in out. the in the like in the present day that like the right like the, kind of like a frame story. Yeah, the frame story only takes a few days, I think, because he he does this one thing one day and then he starts going on a journey like two days later and then he's on the journey for like three or four days. So yeah, yeah probably and then about he comes a week. Back. Yeah, so we're spending most of our time in the book going back and and hearing the backstory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's again that I liked about that compared to Earth Abides. Though. In Earth Abides, it's just like it was very much a story of right this is the post-apocalypse and now the, the apocalypse is here and now the whole book is post post-apocalypse you know you understand that like, like it's everything happens mm-hmm. after the apocalypse whereas in this book you, i thought it was going to be that way and then it goes back and i thought oh we're just getting jimmy's story and then like of course about a quarter of the way through the book you're like oh we're not just getting jimmy's story we're actually getting the story of the apocalypse from somebody who was uh, um who was around mm-hmm for it you know yeah. and, and uh, in, in among the events right um, i also liked how yeah. it wasn't obvious what the cause of the uh problem was in the first place i mean it took a long time for me to realize that there was you know a plague at all um, right I, I thought maybe that they had got overrun by biological you know the pigoons and the raccoons and everything that were around you know I, I started to think that maybe they had created some animals that just took over the place and anyway you know i was thinking about a lot of different things before i realized um what the cause of the the whole apocalypse was 
Yeah, and it's I don't know if it's very evident in this book, but in the the other books of the trilogy, especially the Year of the Flood, you learn that society had already destroyed a lot of itself. Um, a lot of the shores were starting to flood, and there was a lot of crime and a lot of anarchy before the human population was even wiped out. So, um, I, I think, think that's that pretty clear in this book. Okay, you yeah, think so? it, it was clear because um, you either lived in a compound. Like that was run by a corporation, That's so true. You, you know you worked with a corporation and you got to live somewhere safe, or you didn't, and you were what do they call that the plebe plebe land I think plebe lands yeah, yeah. So if you if you live there, you know you weren't under any protection, and it was kind of harsh living is the impression that I got. Right. But also so that makes there was the go ahead. So carry on, Jenny. I oh, think well, you're on a little bit say... of a delay there. <laughs> I was just going to say go. that just makes survival even harder after something bad happens because not only are there no people around but your natural resources are limited too so you're really having to struggle and Jimmy really did struggle mm-hmm. yeah it does say that in the book though they say oh and there was the was it the volcano in Tenerife which wiped out the east coast and New York isn't there so now it's new New York because it's, it was flooded mm-hmm. and they had to like move New York I wasn't quite sure if it was moved or reestablished or if it's just kind of moved in in from the coastline a bit it was wasn't quite sure but no I think it is it was it was almost a I mean it was very much a dystopian and not quite a post-apocalyptic story before the ap- apocalypse like before this um, disease did wipe out all humans but yeah it was already a long way along you know Mm-hmm. And that's what I liked about it, because a lot of these post-apocalypse, it was like, yes, it's modern day, it's the normal world, it's the world we know, here we are, here we are, and then everything changes. And this was like a, no, everything is different, everything is different, everything is different, and now every, all of that's gone. Yeah. You know, so I, I quite liked that um, it, there's a slightly more complex history before the apocalypse, because most apocalypse just happened... Um, you know, they just happen to our world rather than to a different world. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, it does make sense. sense. Yeah. It's like she created and a whole and future that's what I world. Liked about this. Yeah, a whole future world and then had the apocalypse rather than uh, just, uh, you know, it, it reminded me a little bit about, uh, of, have you guys read Octavia Butler? Yes. Um, one of my favorites. Yeah. Parable <laughs> of the Talents or Parable of the Sower, I think, is the first one. It reminded me a mm-hmm. little bit of that world. It does, especially the second book, The Year of the Flood, because that's so much about religion um, and Parable of the Sower is so much about the religion that comes after. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a big parallel there for me, too. Hmm. Okay, then. Interesting. So, sorry, The Year of the Flood, then, is is about before or after this? It's parallel. Parallel, okay. And so it's the present day and then it goes back, but it tells the story of two survivors and also the story of God's gardeners. Hmm. And there's a lot of backstory of Crake in there as well. Um, but there's a lot more humor in it. I mean, it's, it's dark humor, but every chapter or every section starts out with kind of a sermon from God's gardeners followed by a hymn. And I understand that the audiobook has um, actual singing on it hmm. and that it's uh, the, the words of the hymns start to deteriorate as society deteriorates. You know, they start out being very eco-friendly. They don't eat animals. And then by the end, they're justifying eating rats because God has given them to them <laughs> to survive. You know, so it's, it's, there's some humor in that one. It was really fun to yeah. read. Interesting. Was this going to be a trilogy that, all the time? I mean, did did she plan a trilogy, or is it something that um, 
just came about after she wrote this one? You know, I don't really know the answer to that, but I wonder about that. I I feel like Oryx and Crake, it, it ends with a question, and I think that it would have been fine that way. Um, but the rest of the story is pretty compelling, so mm-hmm. I, I didn't look that one up. I don't know for sure. Cool. Do you know, Luke? Um, no, I don't know anything. But I, I mean, I don't mind if, like, I mean, some people say, oh, I really hate series and you know, sure. But I actually quite like the idea of... Um, of like a, a, the next book in the series, um, not just continuing on with the same characters. I actually really like, I mean, that's why I like the culture series by Ian M. Banks is that every time that you read a book, you get new characters and you get a new story and you get a new world and, and you're not kind of beholden to characters and their arcs that have come before. Because, you know, it, often a character learns everything they need in the first story and goes across the journey that they want in the first story. So it's normally best to start again with a new character or a different character and you don't have to start again I mean, you don't have to start with a new character at the same point that the last story ended. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know how it works with this because I've only read Oryx and Crake this first uh, this first book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely plan to continue. This is interesting enough to me to keep going. Yep. Yep. So, Scott, what have you have you got questions about it or comments about it? Have you got any notes that we can go through? Because because Jenny and I we both have some notes. And no, questions let's start with you guys. Through. I don't. I didn't. You know, when I was listening, you know, I did, I wasn't taking notes as I was listening, but the uh, I, I really was interested in that extinctathon, and <clears> and one of the questions that I had was when when it came to the point where Crake was genetically engineering things. It, did I get this right that he basically hired a bunch of the players of that game? And all these people's names, those were like uh, Mad Adam is the name of a person? It, it's not so much that he hired them uh-huh. as he forced them to work for him. I don't think you know that in this book, though. Okay. But they, they do pretty well clear. Up, is it? Yeah, okay. They, See, I wasn't, I wasn't clear on that. So he's, he's building things, you know... Uh, kind of combining animals and things for various reasons and trying to develop this drug that, you know, I I don't know how much to give away, but he, but, um, it was interesting that, you know, they were playing this game early on and then some of these people with the same name showed up in his lab and he was saying that these guys are experts at, uh, splicing and all that stuff. I thought that was interesting. Right. And so Craig, besides just being a genius is also a hacker genius. So he's able to track these people down and he can filter out who has the right genetic ability by how well they can play the game is my impression. Um, and so they, he, he finds them and then they all have to work for him. Um, I thought the, the point of the game was that they have to know um, everything about these extinct um animals mm-hmm. to the point where that they know that they know the animals genetics in a way right. or maybe not know their genetics but know so much about them that, and that when they you know when he needs people to to work with um uh, when he because he is kind of creating different animals that have to survive um you know that won't be extinct that he kind of uses their novel, their knowledge of all the things that an animal could have needed to be extinct, but didn't have it. No, to no, they could yeah. have had to not be extinct, but didn't have it. So is now extinct, and he uses uh-huh. that massive knowledge that they have. So he's he's getting the world's best ever um, uh, minds on you know biological forms. Maybe I'm not sure. Yeah, but yeah it was like super a, a specialized form. 
super interesting to me was when he was describing the crackers. You know, here's my floor models of these these uh, basically human humanoid type things. You know, um, and he was describing things like um, I remember there was a sentence that said war is misplaced sexual aggression or something like that. And how he mm. he wanted to pull that out of these guys so that they wouldn't have war, and that was an yeah. interesting thing. Right, and they he took away the jealousy part of mating and reproducing so that that wouldn't cause any more violence. Uh-huh. That was a major change, and then um, how they could eat their own poop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was handy. Yeah, like rabbit. Really handy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Easier to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these these are the crakers that he uh, makes. When I first started reading the book, well, I was listening to the audiobook actually. So when I was, because um, it is the FFF audio podcast, of course. Because um, <laughs> when when I started reading it, I didn't realize that they were so different from human. Because at the very beginning of the book, it, it was. I know this is just my bad reading of it, but it seems like Jimmy's his first, who is the snowman, who is looking after these um, newly created people. His introduction to the book, I thought he survived into the – I'm talking only like two chapters in or something at this point. But I thought he managed to survive through the um, massive uh, uh, you know, plague, the, the, the plague that – I guess plague is the best thing to call it, even though it's yeah. a bit more like the pandemic, the, uh, mm-hmm. the mass extinction event. I thought he managed to live through that because he himself wasn't entirely – Human, or I'll put it this way: he had had some. He had in his genetic code something different than normal people, which made him kind of not an ancestor to these these crakers, but somehow related to them genetically. Hmm. And they had taken one of his genes because when when Crake was saying to Jimmy, "Ah, oh, I need you to come and work for me. I need you to come here." I thought, "Ah, now we're going to find out what what's special about Jimmy biologically that makes him be able to." survive this um this pandemic this uh, extinction level plague event yeah um, i mean that, that's super and, interesting and that the, because i, I got because, the impression you know jimmy jimmy was uh immune right but he's like the only person who was yeah craig made him immune well, right so if craig, craig made him made immune him in- maybe there is a commonality between the two Anyway, yeah, ahead. but that was a, that was a thing that was unclear. But I, uh, for a while, I thought that they had um, that there was the, when they when Jimmy's parents were introduced, and it's like, oh, you're special. You need to stay home. I thought he had been. I thought he was already um, the result of a um, biological or genetic experiment. And it turns out I don't think that is. I think that was just my kind of clumsy reading, or maybe slightly unclear writing at that point but i thought that was there and it wasn't i'm just saying that's that was one of my thoughts when when we went into this it's it's a really Um, interesting thought because i'm just thinking you know now that we know everything that happened it's it's possible that they do share some genetic material even though he was not a genetic he wasn't a genetic and genetically engineered but maybe the crakers and he have something in common that yeah it's part of that bigger question, though. Why Jimmy? Why was he the one designated to be the sole protector, survivor? I mean, he's not the smartest guy. Uh-huh. He's really not the smartest guy. Not at all. Which I think is another... I think that that's another parallel that you have with uh, Earth Abides, that the guy uh, in Earth Abides thinks he's really intelligent. He's going to become this um, patriarch figure, and because he knows he went to university, he thinks he's 
really clever but actually when you read it through it turns out he just doesn't have the right smarts and like it takes him years to even visit the library again and that's something that i think i brought out on the episode that well that's what which i i wanted to talk about on the episode that we did about earth abides is that what makes it so good is that the guy who lives on isn't the best suited it's just the guy who survived and i think what they were looking for here um or what Craig was looking for was someone who could do the mythology in the right way. Hmm. So this you leads know, to one Craig, of my... Craig wanted a legend and a myth about himself. That's true. <laughs> yeah, but, and, okay. and I guess Snowman kind of creates that just by trying to explain to these Krakers what, uh, <laughs> where Craig is, right? He's just, you know, I, that's, that's the first time I've thought of that is he was like creating a creation myth. Wasn't yes, he, he was. It yeah. was. It was a very yeah. It was a very clear creation bit, even mm-hmm. to the point of him having to be killed by his you know successor and all that kind of stuff. It's that is it's there's it's full of mythic archetypes and you wow. know and the jealousy mm-hmm. and the and the mother figure and the mysterious father. You know, there's loads of loads of really good stuff in there. Yeah, that's um, great. That's great. Yeah, because he's a megalomaniac. I mean, that yes, that's I mean he's the only he's explanation. <laughs> You're talking about yeah. Craig, right? Yeah, because honestly, yeah. the question that I, I, I remain with, I, I understand this idea of him wanting to create this myth and this new world, but I don't understand why he wouldn't want to be there to see what would happen. Um, because that's what, all he did in Extinctathon, right, is to see the people die. And in that, what is it called, Blood and Roses game, where it was all about killing off civilizations as well as you could. Mm-hmm. I, I, I still felt like he would have wanted that. to see I don't know. I don't get it. Yeah. yeah. There's a um, there's a there's a line in uh, uh, about the uh, uh, this blood and roses game, which w- w- when it came up, I was like, oh, this is really good. I really like the idea of the blood and roses game. And just to quickly explain it, it's a game where one person takes the side of blood and the other t- person takes the side the side of roses, and they have to play and the counters are either human human atrocities on one side or human accomplishments on the other side. And if Roses wins, you have a, a beautiful technological world full of, full of wondrous works of art and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then it says, oh, and Jimmy complains that when Blood won, they're just left with a wasteland. And he's like, yeah, but that's the point of the game, said Crake or whatever it was there. <laughs> and I thought when I was reading this, I thought, oh, that's clever. And then like literally about, you know, 10 minutes of, of, of listening to the audiobook later, I was like, oh, oh, they've given away the whole of the rest of the book. And literally, I knew what was going to happen. I, it was, everything was a mystery up until that game. And as soon as that game happened, nothing was a mystery anymore. Like, I knew what was coming. And then the whole rest of the book kind of felt like just playing out that idea that one person, um, one person is going to be playing... Uh, roses and the other person is going to be playing uh, what is it blood and mm-hmm. both of these players are actually Craig Craig is playing both sides of this game and he is saying to create this new wondrous world like this new amazing uh, uh, world which are full of perfect human beings like that it, everything it's the greatest human achievement is actually removing all of the bad stuff about humans and just leaving the good stuff, you know, these things that don't eat meat and don't fight over sex and don't have wars and are just there as like these perfect distillations of human perfection, like he saw. It's the biggest rose. But to do that, to, to, to buy that in, in this game, 
Blood and Roses, it would take the biggest um, human atrocity to create, like to pay for this biggest human uh, creative endeavor. And that's what I realized. I was like, ah, Craig is going to create these new people and he's going to create the, uh, the plague that wiped everyone out. And that's why, and as soon as I read that game, I was like, oh, this is really, I mean, for me, it felt really obvious and it felt a little bit too heavy handed with that um, uh, being explained so early on in the novel. And then when it went through to the end, I was like, yep, and yep, and tick, and yep, and tick. And of course, it was still, I still really enjoyed reading it, but I thought that was a, a weakness of the book. Considering when I first heard about this game, Blood and Roses, I thought it was genius. And then I thought, it's too good of an idea uh-huh. just to be. A mentioned game sure. in the book. Yep. You know, yeah, I knew those. I, 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 I knew Extinctathon and Blood and Roses. Uh-huh. Yeah, I yeah. just knew those things were going to come back into it so much more. And now, of what, was Blood and Roses the game also where they were trying to come up with the most obscure pairings possible? You know, civilizations that no one has ever heard of. You know, he was proud that he found one in a 1970s dictionary or uh, encyclopedia or something. No, no, I think that was Quick Time Osama. Okay, so that was a different game. Yeah. yeah, Quick Time Summer was like a like a, a civilization kind of game, like a, mm-hmm. you know Civ Five, I guess is the is the new ver- latest version of that. Where right, yeah, right. yeah, you've got the barbarian hordes coming in and the enlightened um, civilization trying to stop them. I think that was yeah. Quick Time Summer. So Craig, yeah, Craig was into that. He was always coming up with these obscure things, and he was into that extinctathon yeah. where he was always knew about all these extinct animals, and then Blood and Roses, yeah. Yeah. Very nice. And in case, in case nobody's read the book and they haven't picked up on it, Oryx and Crake are two extinct, um, extinct species within the book. And mm-hmm. those are code names that, because uh, these uh, extinctathon players give themselves code names. And Crake is uh, Glenn, I guess his name was. I've got it here on yeah, Wikipedia. That's right. yeah, Glenn. Glenn. Yeah, Glenn. Um, mm-hmm. And Jimmy took the name Snowman after Abominable Snowman, which is actually not allowed because Abominable Snowman was never. Uh, like the Yeti or the Sasquatch hmm. was never really a real animal, but he's like, well, I'm taking it anyway because <laughs> I can. Yep. Because yep. Craig's dead now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's interesting. Yep. yep. I didn't, I didn't make that connection myself. I knew I just well, felt like it was kind of an illusion, but it didn't open up the rest of the book for me, but I did uh, see the connection. I mean, you know, yes, as, as I read, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't like step by step like you were. I didn't. I didn't see the rest of it. I, I kind of knew what the end would be, but I, mm. I didn't know how he was going to get there. Well, I, I kind of like when you read a book like this. <clears> as soon as I realized, ah, he, this is they're going to be involved in this. Like when I, when we started getting going back and getting more backstory mm-hmm. of these characters. Like, I, like it was a possibility that we were going to get the history of the plague as well and the reasons behind it. Uh, and we did, and I, that was it kind of expected. But when this game came up, it wasn't just like it was confirmed that that was the story we were going to be told, but also I knew who the players were going to be and what they were going to do. You know? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Really interesting. Okay, so... Uh, so what do you uh, have to say about that, that game, Germany? Or Well, I have a related question that I've been thinking oh, about okay. a lot. I, you know, Craig is a genius of creating new things. And I've been wondering... Since my last read of the book, did Crake create Oryx? Is Oryx really Oryx? You know, the child that they saw on, on the film, you know, years ago, or did he create her? Wow, I, I never got the impression I, that he created her, but I I did have the question of whether she was really that same person. 
Yeah. Um, but I didn't. I think don't think she, she was. Yeah, but I don't think she was created. I don't think she he made her. One of the reasons I ended up wondering this is because at the end, when he okay, spoiler, huh? When he uh, when he slits her throat, he spoiled already. <laughs> yeah, and mm-hmm. he's looking right at Jimmy. You could say that that was revenge or retaliation or something, but for me, it also felt like this is mine. This is this belongs to me, and I'm going to show you what I can do to things that belong to me. That it, it had that kind of possessiveness to it, and I just wondered if it was because he loved her or if it was because he had created her. I know doesn't I know. doesn't Craig say at that moment? Doesn't he say, "I'm counting on you"? Yeah, he does. Does so he count on he, him to he, kill him? Is it, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I don't know. It's like are you, I thought he was. I thought he was counting on him to to go and bring up the uh, the Krakers. I thought that was yeah, what that I, was about. I think so too. I think I think he may have been saying, "I'm counting on you for all of this. I'm counting on you to kill me, and I'm counting on you to take care of the Krakers." It's like he basically, over all these years, almost programmed Jimmy or selected him to do exactly what he needed him to do. Mm. And then, yes. and then said, uh, I'm counting on you. And then he killed Oryx to set that in motion. If only he'd paid attention to his fridge magnets. <laughs> yeah. The Did you catch magnets. that little detail? <laughs> I, yeah. All those. I didn't remember catching that one before. No, yeah. no. Um, mention it again, because he said something. I, there was two mentions of fridge, fridge, ma- fridge magnets, but when the second or third one came out, I can't remember how many that came out, but when it was like, I was like, oh, damn, I must not have been listening properly when they first mentioned the fridge magnet. So I knew there was a reference there, but I couldn't, I, it passed me by and I didn't go back and try and catch it again. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I have a mark of the first one. I thought I had marked the the second though. I'm, I'm looking for it in my book, but I don't know if I'll find it. Oh well. <laughs> yeah. It was funny though because they definitely moved in theme from, you know, just kind of nerdy stuff that he used to be involved with towards power and. I wish I could yeah. find it because it was pretty funny. The way that Jimmy comes to conclusions is kind of different from how the rest of the brainy people in the book worked. Yeah. Yeah, I quite yeah, like that. I, I, always, I always had the impression that, that Craig knew more than he let on, you know, throughout the whole book, you know, even, you know, about the guy's mom and everything, about Jimmy's mom, you know, how he was there when he saw him on TV and stuff. You just felt like, you know, that was all just planned. Absolutely. Yes. Very much so. And I presume that's when you were saying about, oh, they talk about, uh, God's Gardeners in the second book. I presume that Craig is going to come into that story as well. I'm guessing. I don't know, but that's the kind of uh, thing that was in my, you know, that thing that kind of the thing I was suspecting when you when you say that. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then in the third book, it all comes yeah. really together in a way that I think is just stunning. <laughs> cool. Okay. <laughs> well. I guess Scott and I still have them both to uh, yeah. both in our futures. I was <laughs> yeah, going to say both to, both to look forward to, but um, uh, I'm not sure because there was uh, stuff in this book which uh, annoyed me enough that I'm not sure if I'm going to keep reading like straight away. You know, it's not like oh, I've got to get the next book straight away, but mm-hmm. right. see how that goes. Got, what's well, your other questions then, Jenny? Let's, okay, well, let's, let's get let's through these notes. See. Mm-hmm. Did Oryx know what she was doing? Not with the Krakers, but with the trips she was taking internationally to basically spread the virus. 
Do you think she knew? Do you think she knew what a who Craig really was? Like what he was giving her and what she was handing out. Yeah, and the fact that he wasn't a good person. Um, I just know no. that's one of those. It's one of those questions which you like that. Like you say, you you can write that question down, but that is only what we bring to the story. I don't think that's in the story. I don't think Oryx. I I don't think Oryx's story was very well fleshed out. I thought that was one of the weakest parts of the the book for me. Yeah. So yeah, I didn't. Well, because a lot of it depends on if she really is who she is because Jimmy's always trying to get that story from her and she won't answer the questions directly. And you you don't really know if that's because she's trying to keep something or if she just doesn't have those stories, you know, Mm. but there's a reason that she seeks him out for, I mean, they have a relationship because obviously Craig isn't providing those things to her. And so you kind of, that's, I think that's when you kind of start to see, okay, well maybe he's really not, you know, the, the right kind of person. I mean, you get hints of it before, but that, that was like a warning sign to me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you got the impression again, you know, if, if Craig was this genius that he knew, he knew what was going on there. Yeah. Again, the the whole reason that he picked Oryx, he knew why he picked Oryx, (laughs) you know? Yeah. For me, this is one of those books, which is like annoying in a way that we're not, we're not getting the story from the person who did the work. You know, it's uh-huh. this one step removed. Jimmy's story is okay. And Oryx's story is, you know, even more vague because it's kind of going through like three different people, you know, like in this one, we're reading Jimmy's story. And then we're, through that, we're getting Craig's story and kind of through Jimmy and Craig, we're getting Oryx's story kind of, you know, it's like this big long loop to get to these deeper or like further, you know, as we get further removed um, from this. And even, in this main story, there's like there's big things which happen with Oryx, uh, which you think, oh, it's building up to this, it's building up to this, and then it's kind of just skipped over like really quickly, so almost too briskly that like, you're like, oh, there's this whole big thing there, like because uh, it, it even says at one point, it's like, oh, when was the first time I met Oryx? Was it the time that this happened, or the time that that happened, or the time that this happened, or the time that that happened, or the time that this happened? Maybe it was all of them, and you're like, why aren't we reading? about all of them if they were all that important do you mm-hmm. understand that point? Yeah. you know like yeah. I, I felt like yeah. we were getting that which it, it, it's telling us that it's super important and then just skips over it whereas lots of other points um were less important but then those weren't skipped over but i guess we already we we're already introduced to oryx via these tv and websites uh glimpses i guess beforehand mm-hmm. yeah. um but uh uh, but I, I recently read a, a whole trilogy of, of stories about uh, called um, the First Law ster- series by Joe Abercrombie. It's his fantasy series, and all the way through, I'm like, why are we reading about these characters? These characters aren't do anything; they're just passive and they're just being sent around. And it, like halfway through the last book, in like in the third book, we discover that actually just one person has been pulling all the strings and has been in charge and in control all the way through. But we only find out about it then, and it felt a bit weird. Like at the end of this book that the one guy who was in charge, who I already knew was going to be in charge, but it was only revealed at the very end that actually all of this is Craig. All the good stuff is Craig and all the bad stuff is Craig. And this character is actually Craig and that character is Craig, you know, and this Hmm. connection between these two characters is Craig and this other thing over here is Craig. None of the other characters have their own agency. And I'm like, well, why can't we just have Craig's story? Why does it have to be like these two steps removed from from Craig? In fact, in a way, I'm glad because I wouldn't actually want to be that close to close to Craig's brain because it seems like a quite scary place. Um, hmm. 
but yeah, like you say, it does bring up more questions than it answers about this character. Now, about both characters, Oryx and Craig. Mm-hmm. I-, I finished the first book pretty much thinking it was all Craig, but after reading the second and third, uh, I don't know if he really acted on his own completely. I don't think the ideas come from him. I just, it's, it's interesting to try to puzzle that out through the rest of it, I think. Okay. Well, mm. I'm just saying, I'm just taking this book as this book. And what's within this oh, yeah. book is annoyingly distant. And yet there's someone right there who knows all the answers. And we only get a glimpse of them third hands and second hands, which is what the book is about. You know, that's what the mm-hmm. book is about. Like you say, those questions that you have at the end, more of them than you had at the start. Um, but it doesn't make it a satisfying. Well, it makes it a satisfying story in some ways to read. Um, I think this is really well written in, in most ways, but like I said, there's just these few little, few little points which kind of I felt felt more irksome than uh, than helpful to me as a reader. But of course, this isn't the kind of book which is meant to help a reader do anything, except I don't know. Mm. I don't know. It's meant to do. <laughs> yep. Hmm. Right, and I have a, a, another note here. Okay. My own. My one of my two notes. One was about. Uh, Blood and Roses. The other one was that the end was coming up, and then because it was an audiobook, music started playing at the end, and I'm like, <laughs> that really annoys me. Yeah, like, of yeah. course, when you get to the end of the book, you 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 can turn a page, and it's like the end, and you're like, oh, but there's all this book left here, and it, <laughs> but it's like appendixes or the, the first chapter of the next book book in the mm-hmm. series you know you can it, it's often like ends of books can often creep up on you and you can kind of like the surprise of the end of the book like oh oh ah you know with that last <laughs> line and it can make you, make you think a lot more and that often happens with audiobooks that you get to the end and it's like and then that's it and then mm-hmm. it's like audible hopes you've enjoyed this message and you're like oh that's the end <laughs> but here because they had some music playing out he was because there's these two other people three other people that he he other humans that have s- survived the uh survive the plague mm-hmm. um right right and it's the first hint that you've had any of anybody else has survived the plague except him or in the, certainly not in that area and he goes up to them and he's like oh what shall we do how will i meet them how will i meet them you know what am i gonna do and then he steps out but i knew that i knew that there wasn't time for him to have any interaction with them at the end because the music had already started playing <laughs> i know that's just a niggly thing from listening to the audiobook but it is a complaint yeah, don't tell is. me in advance that yeah, you, you've got thirty seconds left for this book because <laughs> no, that music started. That music started by the time it gets loud way enough. too early. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Did you, were you? Did you listen to the same one? Then? I did. Yeah, yeah. Campbell Scott was the uh, reader. Yeah, you and said you read part of it. It yeah. started uh, way too early. Yeah, yeah. It, it was. You know, it felt Normally like a whole minute it. of uh, music or something. Yeah. Yeah. Just think of it but as it the Quakers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those Crakers yeah. are singing all the time, driving you nuts. <laughs> that's interesting. Because, yeah, that did bother me, too. I was like, oh, that's odd. But that's, uh, you know, I just discarded it. But that's well worth mentioning. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know a way around that. I mean, because you can't just, like, send into Audible and say, hey, can you just remaster this file and take the music <laughs> off the end, please? Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Oh, heck, yeah. That's funny. But true, but true. Someone boiling a kettle. Yeah. Have you got any other notes, Jenny? Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about one thing that really bugged me about the book. Okay. And it's a complaint I have about a lot of post-apocalyptic books is the, um, the convenience of food stores. Right when someone needs something, they stumble across some canned food or 
you know, this happened in the road where the father and son were always finding canned food right when they were going to run out. And I was just like, there is a limited amount of canned food in the world. Mm -hmm. And when Jimmy goes to that watchtower, remember that part? Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of like, really? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Yeah. But he's like stuck up there because the pigs or was it the, what what was the, none of the animals? It wasn't. Yeah. It was pigs. Yeah. It was pigs. Because I was getting confused. I thought it was the fox wolves, wolf foxes. Oh yeah. Those are terrifying. And, uh, I thought that the the explanation of them was kind of skipped over a bit because he seemed really scared of them. I was like, well, why aren't they all? And it was only right at the end. It's like, ah, well, not mm-hmm. at the end. It's like most of the way through that you're like, oh, so these new, the Krakers, the new humans, where they piss, they mark off the territory and no other animals, dangerous animals come into them. You're like, oh, right. Mm-hmm. That's how they do it. Because like the way that he was describing them, I was like, well, these these Quakers over here, they're going to get ripped apart by these um, fox wolves or wolf foxes or whatever they're called. <laughs> wolf hogs. Yeah. Wolf hogs are, yeah. are scary because they look like domestic pets, but they attack like wolves. Yeah, that's it. And they wag their tails <laughs> and then they... Yeah. And then pigoons are scary because they have some human genes in there, so they think a lot smarter. Yeah. Um, so they can strategize and surround you and distract you and then come at you mm. from behind. And they have tusks. So they actually can really hurt you. But I don't know. It's just the convenience of food. And I know that that happens in stories to move them forward. But I've noticed that that happens a lot. It's not that I want to see people starve to death. But, you know. You want, to, you want them to put some work into it. Yeah. I want them to suffer a little bit. Like how many frozen meals can still be sitting around and still frozen for you to eat? Mm-hmm. <laughs> But he learns quite early on not to look in freezers because of the spoiled food. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and at least there are terrific. still fish for the Krakers to give him one fish a week. Yeah, it's, I think it's pretty clear that he is very hungry for, through a lot of this book. You know, it's not, yes. he, does, he does go to the store places to get some more food and to get answers and to get whatever, um, to have a look around and see what he can find. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yep. most of the time, if people have raided places, it's for the alcohol and the drugs. Which makes yep. sense. Yeah. Any yep. other complaints? Because I've got a few. No, I think that's my only one. Okay. There's a lot of this book I really enjoyed. A lot of the writing, really good stuff there. What I really didn't like, and I know it's talking about a, um, a like a, a very uh, dystopian society before the final collapse, before this final plague, but I just don't like reading about people watching and getting off on child porn like child pornography and i it that, that's a big part of this book oryx is a big part of this book and that she keeps coming back and she's like oh, oh yeah and i was doing this stuff and i was you know they put cream on this guy's cock and then i would lick it off and stuff and i'm just like i just don't in, I, I just don't like this stuff you know i just don't like reading about that kind of stuff it's not like it feels like makes me feel uncomfortable or anything like that it's just it's just not very it's just not very nice and, right. and yeah, if I'm I, reading a book, I do read books for enjoyment. And then later mm-hmm. on, it's like, oh, and then this other girl, which may or may not have been the same girl, but it was Oryx again. Let's just say it's Oryx again. And then she was kept in this cupboard. No, not in this cupboard, in this garage. And for all this time, and they kept her in there to rape her, or maybe not rape her. And she's like, oh, no, my, my, the person who bought me as a sex slave, he looked after me nicely and he never had sex with me. And you're just like, what? Like, <laughs> and then he gets fired and then. Further, and and then the main character Jimmy, I was like, it would be really nice to be able to like Jimmy, but he's just just obsessed with having sex with someone while they tell him about how they were abused as a child. And I'm like, this is really grim and 
I just, I just didn't like it. I don't, I don't think it was I, like I understand what Margaret Atwood was doing with this character, in a way, but and I appreciate the writing style and the, and the choices she's making, but it doesn't make me enjoy a book more reading about such such stuff. Yeah, well, I, I, I certainly didn't enjoy that either, but I think she was making a larger point. Yes, you know, I understand a, a that lot of their a lot of their entertainment, you know, was weird. Like they were watching people get executed, you know, online. And uh, gosh, what were some of the other things? There was a whole list of things that they were doing for entertainment, going to these websites and watching things. That I think yeah, um, was probably a description of the the degradation of society. Um, there is one website that. Craig found hilarious called nightynight.com of people killing themselves. Yeah, yeah. Now that I understand and thought was quite fun satire and these other things as well I thought were, and also I really like the idea that oh a lot of this stuff isn't real. It's like oh just with computer technology you can mock anything up and it doesn't have to be real and people saying oh do you think do you think this execution is a real execution? Oh, I'm not really sure. And what about the person who got killed because he had a camera filming the execution? Did he get stoned as well because he was filming it? Oh maybe that was that part wasn't real or that's just because they want, you know, there's a lot about ah oh, they need the sponsors, they need the money, they need the viewership. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it might not have been real. So I, I quite like the ambiguity of a lot of this stuff, like people mm-hmm. watching it, hoping that it wasn't real in some parts of their brains and gonads, but other parts of their brains and gonads were really hoping it was real, and they were kind of getting off on the ambiguity and, and kind of the forbiddenness of the realness and not realness. Yeah. Right, because they had that whole setup of, like, you could go to the mall and you could put the suit on and yeah. it would, you know simulate things for you instead of mm. having to be at risk for disease or whatever. And yeah. it was real enough. Real to you, I think, is what it was called. <laughs> yeah, but let's, yeah, real let's to go. you, that's it. But, I'm but what I'm saying is, like, once you have that level of that, do you really need to have the main character also obsessed and really, really praying, like, almost praying that the person that he's having sex with was abused as a child and to hear about it uh, firsthand? Uh, I just don't I just didn't like there's these different steps, which even maybe while needed, didn't. Yeah, it just it was just a big turn off for the book, like not sexually turn off. But I just as I was getting to those parts of the book, I was like, oh, do I really have to listen to this now? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, part of the perspective I had on it is I was trying to figure out there was that moment when Jimmy and Glenn Craig, when they were younger, they both saw Oryx in the same moment or who we think becomes Oryx. And it really moved them. There's something about the way she connected to the camera. They never forgot her, right? You find out later that not only had Jimmy been obsessed with it, with her, but um, Craig had kept a copy of her picture too. And yes. so I was trying to figure out is part of the reason that Craig is destroying humanity is because he observed what it did to someone that he connected with. I'm not sure I believe that he connected with anyone, but I... I find myself wanting to have a reason for him to have done all these things. And I wonder if that's part of it. And then I just no, I, say it's not. <laughs> no, I think it is. That's what I'm saying. That's why I think Oryx's position is in the, or per, one of the, her purposes in this book is to move Craig to do what he does or to like, maybe not set him on that path, but to like, when he realized he holds himself up as one of the best humans as more intellectual and more and less uh, well, I wouldn't say less emotional, but you know, he's he talks about the was it neuronormative or no? What was it? I can't remember. Some 
like, hey, this is the this is the university, and we're not neurologically normals or whatever it is. Yeah, do, do you guys remember, remember the remember that name, like the neuronormal or something? Mm. Um, and everyone else is, but he saw himself as this bigger thing, and even he was obsessed with Oryx. You know, even he had that weakness, and that's why one of the reasons why he knew he had to die and couldn't go on. And the Crakes were better than the, the Crakers, sorry, were better than him because they wouldn't have this obsession over sex, not an obsession over youth. You know, they, they're not even young long enough not to be sexually active. You know, just in a few years, these Crakers just grow up and go through that phase. He even says there will be no child abuse there will be no pornography there will be none of this stuff which he recognizes as also bad in himself and oryx is like a uh, a symbol of that i think but you yeah. say not jenny so maybe we'll, maybe you're right well i i just can't decide if i want to give him the benefit of the doubt for that or not <laughs> <laughs> i mean he does awful things does that justify it i don't know no it's not justified but it's like that's one of the reasons why he had to like he had to kill her and be killed at the same time if that makes right. sense like no, he had to he had to remove himself uh, like after he removed her after he killed her the next thing that had to do is that he had to he had to be gone as well you know that was like he was excising her from his life by killing her, her and then then he was kind of complete like he was her original temptation her original like eve figure or whatever it is you know um, mm. And then he, as soon as she was gone, he had to be gone as well because then he had been kind of complete. His story had been completed. Oryx had made Crake who he was, and then she was gone, and then he was gone. And it was that kind of thing. And yeah. I appreciate that as a writer, as, as like as a maybe that might be what Margaret Atwood is saying, or that that's what she is there for. Even so, I just still don't like reading about child pornography in that way. <laughs> mm. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Oh no, not even child pornography, just child like blatant child abuse you know it's mm-hmm. the the pornography was just part of it it was the, just the documenting of child abuse i guess right right yeah anyway gotcha so that's that's one thing i didn't like about the book which made it not enjoyable to read even though like i say i don't think that knocks the quality of the book but it did make it unenjoyable um the uh, the other thing that I wanted to say about is just the like the really random levels of technology uh, and this kind of plays into the you know is it it's a good novel is it good science fiction and I and I'm not sure it is because the science and technology levels of technology is just all over the place for example they can create any kind of video of anything that they want which is indistinguishable from reality and then they watch them on DVDs and I'm not saying that DVDs are a bad technology but they're very dated technology <laughs> now. And I think even when this book came out in, what was it, 2000 and... Even then, it's not as if there wasn't, like, an, it wasn't a dated technology. You know, it, like, you, you know, anybody who was, um, anybody who was writing post-apocalyptic fiction, or, oh, let me put it this way, anyone who's writing a dystopia in the future, like, if you're a good science fiction writer, you should know by now not to use today's terminology for storage medium that's why uh these days if you have like uh, even science fiction writers now they don't say oh it's on tape no no in the past they'd say <laughs> oh it's on tape there's a book tape it's a tape it's a tape because everything yeah. was kept on tapes but i think most science fiction writers now have learned the lesson and don't store information or movies on dvd or on today's technology they always posit something new like he got out the thing and plugged it in and the thing is just a a it's just another noun 
Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what the technology is on another noun, but it shows awareness of science fiction that you shouldn't say, put in the DVD, in the same way that 1950s authors say, we put it on tape and now nothing is on tape, or we put it on punch cards and nothing is on punch cards, and then we put it on you know, a, a disc and now nothing is on disc. You know, it's all... Yeah, yeah, it definitely, definitely dates you, doesn't it? You know, I, yeah, I recently was- watched a movie called Colossus, and uh, it was about a computer the that Corbin was, project, yeah. yeah, that's it, you know, and uh, there was tapes and every time you saw a message on this board, it would, you would hear the teletype machine, you know, yeah, you know, you're right, you know, and, and DVDs are already pretty much obsolete. Well, yeah. Well, in the acknowledgments to the last book of the trilogy, mm-hmm. Margaret Atwood herself says, although this is a work of fiction, it does not clu- include any technologies or bio beings that do not already exist, are not under construction or are not possible in theory. So possibly she's intentional about that, although we already oh. have cloud storage now. So, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. thing is, that is the thing that I have most problems with in a world where dvds still exist and now the the i first i thought it was like oh people watch stuff on dvds because all of the technology has been destroyed so now they're watching stuff on dvds because that's the only thing that lasted over from when this big technological hit happened back say like this was written in 2003 i thought well maybe the apocalypse happened in 2001 and everything or most movies that are around lasted on dvd because dvds they don't wear out like like a, a magnetic tape might. So that's been the thing. But then I realized that, no, even in this, po- in this, uh, dystopian techn- uh, this dystopian world, the technology has increased and moved on way, 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 way beyond anything in 2003 to the point where you can create biological beings from scratch without too much problem, with a lot of money, but without too much problems and all these other technologies that they make, without too much problems and all these drugs that they make, without too much problems. Like, nobody seems to have to work on any new technologies very easily. And yet, people are still watching stuff on DVDs. And uh, uh, I'm just using DVDs. There was quite a few other um, Mm -hmm. technologies that seem to be there. Like, in a world where there's um, vacuum bullet trains, high-speed bullet trains across the country between different cities and all these other technologies... DVDs and some of these other, te- you know, like there, there seems to be just these differing levels and it didn't feel intentional at all. It felt very clumsy and very bad uh, thinking, like very bad world building. Like there's a lot of the world building that I thought was very good, but it's alongside all of this stuff which felt clunky and just just bad, ba- just badly thought out mm-hmm. um, in a way that most science fiction authors would be able to think out, which is a knock against the book. However, Margaret Atwood herself says she doesn't write science fiction. So now I understand why people say she should call it science fiction, but I also understand why she doesn't want to call it science fiction because the level of science and technology and all these other things in her books is just not what she's interested in. She's just not interested in that at all. She's interested in a world where dot 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 in a world where there's been a plague and there's pigoons and this is the thing and she she is is has zero concerns about tying it together in a plausibly technologically and scientifically uh way plausible way what i'm trying to say yeah so uh so that's my yeah well you know when i think about you know margaret atwood and what she you know she keeps saying she doesn't write science fiction you know when i read this book this book is a lot different in tone and feel to a lot of the science fiction that I read. 
and I can't yes. I can't really point at it. You know what you're saying, I think is is a really good point. But you know why does this book end up like on a Booker Prize list, and maybe you know the the best Hugo Award winner would never show up on a Booker Prize list. Um, I, I can't because say that I can... Because this is about humans. Yeah, and I think that that might be it. It's not... It's, this is a book about humans without mm-hmm. any thought of the science. Normally, science fiction, I'm being super uh, reductive here, like super mm-hmm. generalizing, but the idea that science fiction is, okay, we have a society, a new piece of technology is introduced into it, and what does it tell us about humanity in the way that people react to that new technology or react to that new science or react to that new alien species or react to this? It's about, you know, how do people use this and how do they react to it? And that's kind of what tells us more about humanity. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's kind of prompted by the scientific, it's prompted by the societal change, it's prompted by, you know, in social science fiction, like, what's this new area and how do people react to that? This book is not about that at all. This book is about humans who happen to live in a distant world, who happen to live in a post-apocalyptic world, who happen to live in a world where science fiction stuff happens, but all of that, it's not mediated through technology or science. It's just, we're just raw in the people. We're just raw with the people. This Mm -hmm. is a book about humans not intermediated but through that kind of stuff which most science fiction seems to do again i'm mm-hmm. being super reductive and super right. generalizing here so, but, so um, in that way you know and I, I accept think. everything you've said there so in that way margaret atwood is right when she says that she doesn't write science fiction no well that's i un, i understand her opinion in that way mm-hmm. but i would say this is science fiction i'd say it's pretty bad science fiction but it is a good novel despite it being bad science fiction, because science fiction was never her goal. And mm-hmm. I think that's the difference. That, Other yeah. people will say, oh, is it science fiction? Is it not science fiction? I think anything that has, you know, is post-apocalyptic and has uh, biological creations and all these other kind of stuff. Yes, I would just say, yeah, it's science fiction because it's, it's got enough science fiction stuff in it. But that mm-hmm. isn't the concern of Margaret Atwood. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. why when Jesse, Jesse always gets annoyed at her by saying, oh, I don't read science fiction, he thinks she's being snooty. I just think she doesn't care. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't care about science fiction, and why would she? Because that's not what this book is about. It, it contains science fiction; it's just not about science fiction. Yeah. Right? She needed the set, anyway. the setting, to be that way to make the story effective. Yeah, yeah. Right. But the story isn't about that. Well, even though it is about that, it's like it's like saying, "Oh, this." Uh, let me put it this way: a lot of science fiction is there. You get these characters. And then something happens and they react to it. Whereas this takes the other way around. It's like, we've got this set of characters and they're going to make it happen. Like they make the science happen. It's just about them Hmm. doing stuff. It's not about them reacting to it. All the way through this book, you can see it leading up to Crake, the science and the the science fiction in this book is the result of Crake's brain and Jimmy's brain and Oryx's brain. It was the result of those characters what they're doing, the science fiction kind of falls out of that rather than causing it in the first place. If that makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. Mm-hmm. No, it makes so, sense. That's my, that's my view on it. Yeah. Yeah, and Margaret Atwood is not the first person, you know, first writer to kind of push away that label either, you know. Wasn't people like, you know, J.G. Ballard? Wasn't he one, somebody, you know, I don't want to... He's a great example, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he also writes science fiction, but, you know, he's not going to show up on Hugo Award lists and things. Um, anyway, don't it's, worry it's, it's interesting Hugo to think about. Yeah, I know, I'm, I just bring that up as to, as to say, you know, that's, you know, what, 
what people think science fiction is is in the Hugo Awards, right? So at the same time, yeah. <laughs> at the same time, I was in a book club experience where um, this book was so close to science fiction to the other readers that it got boycotted. <laughs> oh, that it wasn't a science fiction reading group. And so well, this was we were too all, science fiction for it. It was just a book group, right? And we were all yeah. supposed to bring a book. And I brought this book because I think it has a lot to talk about. But half the people refused to come that month or to read the book. Hmm. Oh, geez. Because it was science fiction. <laughs> because yeah. it was science fiction. Yeah. Oh. Well, that's <laughs> really funny being, because yeah. I, yeah, I think it'd be funny because I, I think a lot of people like Jesse would be like, oh, I don't want to read this book. I know there's different reasons why he doesn't want to read it, but. I think science fiction people would be like, oh, I don't want to read it because it isn't science fiction. They, know. You know, they wouldn't see it as science fiction, maybe. But mm-hmm. science fiction, uh, what do you call them? Lumpers, I guess that would be the thing. Like people who want to lump things into, uh, into categories rather than just describe stuff or give stuff names. They, uh, they, they try and deny science. They try and kind of keep the idea of science fiction pure. Like Jesse was saying, oh, um, Star Wars isn't science fiction, and I was like, "Why not? It has, uh, it has, it has, uh, you know, it has spaceships and all mm-hmm. of this kind of stuff." And he's saying, "Yeah, but it doesn't. It's just a space fantasy." And I was like, "No, there's a lot. There's it is science fiction." So in the end, I had to kind of we went onto um, Wikipedia and looked at Wikipedia. And at the top of Wikipedia, it says, uh, "Let me just bring it up here." Um, he says, just including spaceships isn't enough. It says, science fiction is a genre of fiction dealing with imaginative content such as futuristic settings, futuristic science and technology, space travel, parallel universes, extraterrestrial life, and paranormal activities. Um, but this is, the, this is the key thing that says, exploring the consequences of scientific innovations is one purpose of science fiction, making it a literature of ideas. Now, like, there is no clearer, um, there is no clearer description of Star Wars, you know, episode four, the first one, of exploring the consequences of scientific innovations. Because that's what it does. There's a world, it starts with the Death Star turning up, mm-hmm. and it ends with the destruction of the Death Star. And the <clears> story <throat> is, a new scientific and technological innovation turns up on the scene, and with it comes massive political changes. You know, well, how are we going to keep control of the Senate? We will, no, how are we going to keep control if not through the Senate? Now the Senate is dissolute. Oh, we'll keep control by the fear of this battle station. You know, it's got political ramifications and personal ramifications and power ramifications all the way through. And then the whole story is like, we need now the technological plans, the technological plans to this R2-D2. That's his job right from the very beginning. The, the, the very first thing that happens is Princess Leia gives R2-D2 these plans and then they go out again and the, the end of the story is it being blown up, which makes it in like a perfect description of what science fiction is. And yet so many people are like, oh, Star Wars, it's too wishy-washy. It's just a space fantasy. It's not science fiction. But there's no way to describe science fiction without also including Star Wars in it. And I'm very happy to include anything that wants to be science fiction or anything that other people want to be science fiction into the category of science fiction, mm-hmm. um, even yeah, if it I happens was, in it. I was thinking of a few other novels that are clearly literary fiction, but I would also include in science fiction, like yeah. uh, Gravity's Rainbow. Um, what was the other one I was thinking? Oh, um, Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. That takes place in a completely dystopian future landscape, too. And it yeah. just adds enhancement to what's going on. It, it, it provides a way to tell a story where you'd never be able to tell it otherwise. It's the same yeah. kind of thing. 
mm-hmm. they may that's not a- label it that way, but that's okay. But that's the thing. Labels are fine. But like, if you have a genre, a genre is exclusive. Like it says here, the science fiction is a genre of fiction. And down the page, it's like subgenres. I don't like the idea of something having a subgenre because <clears> if it, because then it kind of goes into a tree. And as you get further down the tree, it's like a, uh, the analogy that I was saying with Jesse when we talked about this the other day is that like in Gmail you can put tags on something, and in Yahoo Mail, which was the email that I used before Gmail, you put stuff in folders, and anything could go in one folder. And if you moved it out of a folder, it had to go in another folder. And it couldn't be in the folder that it was in originally. It could only move between folders. Whereas Gmail is actually a lot more interesting because you can give one email many, many tags. It can have 50 tags. And I'm yeah. much more of a tag person than a folder person. I'm more Absolutely. of a, you know, uh, you know, I don't think things need to go in genres or folders exclusively. And you said, I don't mind putting it in science fiction. I, I wouldn't even say it's in science fiction. I would say it, it, it includes science fiction or uh, well, not includes science fiction. Yeah. Something should be able to include lots of things rather than one thing. Like, one book should be able to include lots of genre um, things rather than one genre including lots of books. You know, I think a genre is something you should assign to a book rather than a book being something you should assign to a genre. Hmm. Absolutely. Got to think of it it that way around. Okay, but then where do you put it on the shelf? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, and that's the whole point of the, and don't, the point yeah. is in the in the modern world things don't need to go in shelves like in goodreads.com everything can go in it can go on many shelves that's the whole point like this book i uh, uh let me see if i can find where did i even categorize this book yeah i put it in audiobook plan to read at some point because this has been recommended to me ages ago read recommended by sfbrp listeners and sff audio so it's on loads of shelves in the modern world, we don't need categories, we don't need shelves, we just need tags and labels or, or bookshelves in the way that Goodreads does it because you can put some, one book on many different bookshelves. You can make up your own bookshelves to put on. Well, I clearly like, have I, some tagging to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in, yeah. in Gmail, I don't, even, I don't even tag anything. You just search for it. I just search for it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, there's no reason. It's all like one big shelf that's not, you know, I, I don't organize it in any way. Oh, I have lots of mm-hmm. automatic tags that come in. So when something arrives, if it's mm-hmm. from this email address, it gets tagged. And, you know, I've got whole tags of of books. People want me to read books. And this mm-hmm. is another tag of people don't want me to read books. Uh, this is another one of, uh, you know, publishers want me to read books and I've turned uh, them down. You know, all of yeah. those, which is quite probably the biggest folder of SFBRP feedback is people hmm. wanting me to read stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and you know, in Goodreads, not, not an email, but in Goodreads, you can go into your bookshelves and then combine bookshelves. So I keep track of all the books I own with an own shelf, and then I can go into own poetry unread. And then I have a list of poetry I can read that month or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. <laughs> so it's like a, it's like a Venn diagram, isn't it? It's not yeah. even just tags. It's like, <laughs> a, yeah, you can, get it together in that way yeah that's cool that's cool yeah well great so i think i've got everything off my chest about what i want to say this i Mm -hmm. I rated it three stars in terms of science fiction book review podcast but of course this isn't going to be that show it's a different show but uh stuff i I like stuff i didn't like yep i gave it four um i'll definitely be continuing i was interested throughout i gave it five big (laughs) surprise (laughs) yeah so an average of four star book, then we can do it this mm-hmm. way. But it, yeah. it's 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 a bit unfair because this book was picked because it was one of Jenny's favorite books of all time. So right, right. It, of course it's of course it's going to be uh, 
edged up where in the average uh, in the average rankings but uh, yeah and i i did rank the others four instead of five because i felt like the first one was the best idea book and the other uh, ones just kind of fill in the story you know and that's which the thing I, that I appreciated but yeah but that's that's what happens with sequels or other books in a series if the first the first one can be really good science fiction like like Star Wars, but what happens in the second Star Wars movie, Empire Strikes Back, it doesn't introduce a new technological or scientific advance. It's right. then more, it's th- then it goes more into the, um, you know, like exploring characters. It's much more about the family drama. It's much more about the love story. Even though it does talk about the Force, at, at that point, the Force seems to be very much more of a, like a fantasy kind of element, which is still fine, but it, it feels much less science fiction-y to me. And the third book, doesn't introduce anything new. It's just like, oh, and here's another Death Star. And it's more family drama and love story and escape stuff. So I actually think often in science fiction stories, the first book has all the good science fictional ideas. And then the next ones are continuations of human stories. And I think, again, Star Wars is, a, is a good, uh, another good example of that, how it can start off strong science fiction. And then once you get used to the characters and setting, it then moves on to human drama. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.